This week on FX Guide TV. We are at Sony Imageworks for Men in Black 3. This and more coming up next. We're proud to say that this episode is brought to you by Interdubs, the standard for online work in progress posting. Go and visit interdubs.com and request a trial for your company. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to FX Guide TV. Back in black. Yes, the much-loved men in black are back and back in time. Well, to sort it all out, here is our very own Mike Seymour, who visited the team at Sony Imageworks in LA for this in-depth look at the film. Somehow history has been rewritten. There has to be a reason this is happening, and Kay seems to be at the centre of it. You're going to send me back to 1969. I'm an agent of Men in Black, but I'm from the future. We're partners. Good future man work too. First of all, I'm going to need my gun. No, no, no. Space gun. We're running out of time. We're running out of clues. And there's an invasion coming. So really, we need to go right now. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Sure. So this is uh, a, a gift in terms of character animation, all kind of effects uh, work, because this is a much loved franchise. Uh, what appealed to you about the project? Well, it's actually, to your point, it feels like a big uh, cornucopia, so to speak, of, of opportunities and challenges, really. And we like to joke around here that, you know, work comes to us, oh, it's really hard, and we like to flip it around and say, no, but it's opportunities. Yeah. In this film, you get an opportunity to both be kind of loud with the visual effects, to use that term, because obviously they're meant to be uh, front and centre, but also there's the kind of classic straight guy. I mean, these guys are not playing it for, <laughs> for you know, thigh-slapping laughter. They're, right. they're playing it straight. I mean, where does visual effects in comedy need to sit to work? Well, it's a great question. It's something that we actually work on the entire time we're working on the picture. When you get to sit with Barry and you realize his sense of humor, he takes his sense of humor seriously, if that makes sense. So that there's a fine line in his movies of feeling realistic but still fun. And, you know, that was something that challenged us on the movie, which is we've kind of termed lately, Ken and I have been talking about this, is that it's kind of a live-action cartoon in that we follow physics, we follow reality, but stylize things a little bit. So when you look at Barry's camera work, for instance, he uses wide-angle lenses. Often, like you know, a 21, 21 millimeter is actually the lens that was used the most on the set. In fact, it's it was, it was a joke about, like, just get rid of the other lenses. We'll just use the 21. And, you know, to that effect, playing effects forward to the camera or behind actors and whatnot and trying to get your attention while you're still focusing on Will Smith's funny line is, it's a big challenge. But he's really clever at, what it call, you know, called pregnant pauses, for example. It's lingering. And, and that's hard to do in visual effects sometimes because it tends to be like you expect these things to keep hitting and hitting and hitting. Right. And taking a beat takes tremendous kind of, well, self-control, really. Well, we have some chances in this, particularly in, in Wu's diner and the fish fight, where if you might not see it the first time around. Hopefully you will. But the, the, the creature actually is responding to dialogue, even though he's inside a tank or things are happening to him out on the street when he's struggling with Will, or Agent J, in the movie, and there are some things happening in his eyes, like there's an intelligence put onto the creatures. I think that's one of the things that I really liked about the first two films, is that they weren't just aliens to be cool and weird, there's actually kind of a sentience and a presence to them, and a lot of that comes from you know, Rick Baker's designs as well. 
nothing was on set. There was there was a there was a kind of an attempt um, by the the costume or prop department to make a, a huge foam kind of thing like dome with flippers on it because um, for him to interact with, but there really weren't many shots that came back to us that had that thing in it. And the shots that had it in there were, um, I mean, it, it, the, the foam was so soft that it, it really was almost like Will was pushing against nothing. So um, for the most part, there wasn't much in there. Um, and that whole process was, was sort of going on while we were designing the, the fish itself. So this, the fish went through a huge evolutionary process where there were a lot of people involved in initially doing sketches of it and sculptures and Barry wasn't really liking any of that and then um, Ken Ralston um, said okay well let's just let's just take it all over to Imageworks and we'll start modeling and designing and you know we'll start sketching and stuff from here and so we, we myself uh, Ken and Jay Red um, did most of, of the designing on that fish and so we went through a number of iterations and back and forth with Barry and um, and, th and they were shooting a lot of this while we were doing this as well. So it was, um, it was a process that they didn't really know what it was going to look like on the set. So all they knew was that it was going to be a big, heavy, powerful fish and that Will was going to be partially swallowed by it. So, so when he's interacting, <clears throat> did that necessitate you... Uh, when you came to doing final animation, replacing, say, his arms or his hands and stuff to make that kind of believable interaction? Now, there were a couple of shots where we, well, there was one shot where we replaced Will completely with a digital version of him. Because of the interaction or was it a stunt? It was both. Okay. It was both because it was, a, it was a big wide shot. The fish was tumbling with Will across the street. They shot a stunt but the stunt was the stunt man was twisting and turning and flipping in such a way that, that there there wasn't any allowance to put the fish in there. Right, an absence of the fish's volume. Yeah, yeah. So he was he was tumbling and getting pulled on wires, but his feet were landing on the street in such a way that we couldn't like fit the fish in there. And so um, we just did it all digitally that way. The other shots were we didn't have to replace much of Will because. They were shot in such a way that it, um, you couldn't necessarily see the direct connection. There was a lot of close-ups and a lot of cutaways and, and things like that. There's a lot of interaction between Will and that character. So, you know, there's a lot of wire work where he's kind of getting pulled along and lifted up. And, you know, the animators had to take the CG character and make sure that what was happening to Will on the plate, you know, the fish looked like it was actually, you know, causing that action. Um, and uh, a lot of uh, tables and stuff getting like thrown out of the way, so interaction with the set. So you had a rigged set to do that? In the case of the fish, we, in some cases we did, um, in the case of tables and stuff, we usually just took a clean plate and took out all the stuff, um, or at least tried to before the fish would interact and replace it with CG. So we'd look for places where we could, you know, make a switch. Um, in the case of the one shot that has the most where he comes flying out of this kitchen door, you know, Will actually kind of flew through frame and wiped over top of a lot of this stuff and we could make a switch, but then he actually hit a table and the table would flip up and we could, you know, switch out the rest. So, um, you know, it's sort of at the beginning of the shot we would actually have plate objects and then towards the end 
you know, we'd switch out the CG in kind of convenient places and then, you know, the fish could come through and start to, you know, interact with those. The thing that I always wanted out of this fish and, um, and what I thought it, sh it should be is that it should be uh, dangerous. It should be a monster and it should have expressive eyes because we had a couple of um, sequences or a couple of shots in there that Barry was directing to have the fish react to what Will is saying and what the, um, the uh, owner of the restaurant is saying and, and this conversation. And so the fish is in the tank and we can see in his eyes that his eyes are kind of like looking around and he's, his brows are going up. So we knew we had to get some expression out of the face like that, although it's pretty subtle stuff. But, um, but the main thing is that it had to be, I thought it had to be vicious. And I found this prehistoric fish because I was going through tons of like animal reference and pictures of you know sharks and walruses and all kinds of stuff as we were designing this thing. And I came across this prehistoric fish called a Dunkleosteus, which is this gigantic like 30 foot long creature with this huge powerful jaw. Really opens wide and, and really like big bony jaw and, and very prominent. And um, so I thought, oh, that's cool because we know he's got a swallow will. We know the mouth has got to open really wide. Um, and, you know, we, we need to see a lot of teeth in there so we know it's really dangerous. So that was, that was one of the main things that I um, was focusing on was the, the, uh, the savage quality of the face. So in contrast to the fish, you also had more delicate kind of uh, characters to deal with that really weren't big and and carrying weight. Mm -hmm. The Did weasel you know? in particular. Yeah. You're talking about the weasel, I right? <laughs> the weasel, or we called it a weasel. It really has no connection to what we think of as a weasel. It's, um, it's this symbiotic creature that is part of Boris, the villain in the movie. And um, yeah, obviously he's not human, um, but he, he kind of has a human form. Um, but this symbiotic creature that he uses as a weapon, the weasel lives in, in his hand. So his, his palm opens up and this thing can crawl in and I guess it lives in his arm because it crawls in and out of his hand. And he uses it as a weapon um, because it has these um, spikes on the front of it that it can aim and, and shoot um, these quills out and as uh, daggers and use them as weapons. And um, the weasel was a lot of fun and it was a great contrast um, to something like the alien fish, for example, which was, you know, huge and heavy and powerful and had this gigantic blubbery presence. And the weasel was on the other end of the spectrum of that. It was a little kind of bug-like thing, um, and it was very skittery and very hyper, and we had these, like, controls to, like, have this um, hyper kind of breathing to it, this really high metabolism kind of thing that's always on alert, always tense. Um, so that was a lot of fun to animate. And it was also, it's also something that even though it's a part of Boris, it still is a separate creature of its own. So it has, it's almost like a pet in a way. And so we had a couple of fun shots where we could play with the um, affection that this thing has for Boris and vice versa. And so in one sequence in the prison, before it jumps into his hand, it sort of rubs against his face. And there's, I think they even put in a little like purring sound or something with it. So it's, um, 
And then there's a, a moment uh, when Boris is talking to Agent K about having his arm shot off and how the other weasel that he had in his other hand is gone. And he looks down at the weasel that's still there and the weasel sort of peeks out and does this sad little face, which was a fun challenge too because the weasel doesn't have much of a face. face yeah. it, it just has a dark sort of orb for an eye and a brow, which we enhanced actually a little bit so we could get some kind of a, a little like kind of shape out of it. Um, so that was kind of fun to do. I mean, it's brief, you know, subtle kind of stuff. Now, I understand by the time you got to the climax of the film at Cape Canaveral, a lot of you guys uh, were sort of called into the fray, a yes. big sequence. So what did you work on on that sequence? Um, for us, we did a lot of the close-ups with uh, the villain, Boris, um, and Jay up on the um, kind of the top part of the gantry where they're having the big fight at the end. And uh, one of the cool parts about that is kind of at the emotional climax when they're fighting, he reveals more of his alien nature in the past we had seen kind of what he can shoot with the weasel out of his hands but when he got really angry he has the same kind of claws around his goggles and they flare up and they're kind of a, kind of a character onto themselves so we got to actually see him emote and they would flare up and kind of uh, add to the, the intensity of that. Was there anything in the plate photography to help you there or was that all done just digitally? Um, no actually for the majority of the film um, there's prosthetics that are, are makeup you know, that he had as his character, and then we had to match those digitally, and then, the, you know, with the animation and the integration, we then replaced, usually his entire face was then replaced in that section uh, with the digital version. Hmm. So, I presume the, the key to selling that is a combination of both getting really good uh, movement to match, but also just good lighting. Yeah, the lighting was key. Um, the tracking, like you're saying, it was definitely an important part of it. One of the cool things is once we went digital, with that area, when they opened up, we got to reveal kind of that gooey, sticky insides that were all around those goggles, because those actual goggles went right back into his head. So we got to reveal, like, when he got hit with the wrench, they would flare open and you would see right back into there, which was kind of a fun moment. And also you got to work on, and they don't have a big role in the film, but you got to work on the weasels, they're kind of fan favorites. Yes, uh, the weasels, um, his, uh, Boris's companion. Um, I helped out with the sequence on the rooftop when um, he's having an emotional moment talking about how he lost his, his companion his other weasel. with the other arm. And he looks down and the little weasel pops out and kind of looks at him. And we ended up actually uh, replacing that entire hand. When you look down, it was shot with his, the actor's hand with the prosthetic piece in there, but it turned out to be a much easier and more seamless integration by replacing the full hand digitally and then having the weasel come from that. Was it hard to get um, a performance out of the weasel? I mean, as a character, it's not got a really obvious normal face to make no, smile. No, it friend. doesn't. Um, you know, the animators did a great job kind of getting a little bit more expression out of like the eye and eyebrow area. And then we just had to use more, we had to actually go back in and add extra lights so that we could get specific parts to highlight and get some specularity to kick in certain spots so that we can really see that little moment when he looks up at uh, Boris. There are things out there you don't need to know. That's not the lie you told me when you recruited me. I promise you the secrets of the universe, nothing more. Well, what other secrets are there? So just run me through the pipeline. What were you actually shooting on? What was the capture medium? Yeah, so back in around May or June of 2010, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, Bill Pope, who's DP of photography, 
Ken Ralston, visual effects supervisor, and Corey Turner, who's a stereoscopic supervisor, ran along a test, a bunch of tests to see what's the best format for shooting Men in Black 3. The studio definitely wanted a 3D release. It sort of makes sense, Men in Black 3D, made a nice easy flow out of the title. Um, and they had gone along and they weren't sure whether they wanted to shoot motion picture film or digital cinema. They weren't sure whether they wanted to use a stereo rig or do uh, stereo post-conversion. Um, they had done a bunch of tests. They brought Will Smith in, you know, in the suit, uh, doing some typical actions, and took all of the single um, cameras, both digital and film, and we had done a stereo conversion here at Imageworks. We had pretty familiar with that process, having done that on Alice in Wonderland, a bunch of films beforehand. And at the end of the day, um, the decision that both Barry and Bill Pope had was they were much more comfortable with film. It was a very known medium for them, didn't have some of the um, question marks, variables, and uh, I think some of just the, what they felt was sort of production constraints by shooting or bringing along a bunch of um, digital equipment along uh, for the shoot. And they also preferred actually doing the stereo conversion because it allowed them a little more flexibility in trying to figure out exactly how to play the depth in these shots. So, you know, for those reasons, we wound up shooting um, a traditional motion picture, single camera, and doing the stereo conversion afterwards. Uh, there was only one sequence in there that we did use an Ari Alexa, and that was for the nighttime background plates for the monocycle chase sequence. Um, Jay Red, who was the other visual effects supervisor, decided to go with that along with Bill Pope because of the sort of ability to capture a little more of the detail down in the you know, very low end of the dark, dark plates that we were getting. The monocycle chase, which, yeah, it was a big part of in second unit. We shot all, that on, shot all the background plates in second unit all over New York and Queens and uh, locked off dozens of blocks, actually, to be able to run camera cars and stuff down for backgrounds and foregrounds, actually. So we shot that on Alexa because it allowed us to capture a huge range in the footage because you can't go through and light, you know, 10 blocks on a street. That's going to take a lot of work. So it, allowed, it gave us really good flexibility in and the end. If you're covering that kind of distance, you're going to have to do a fair amount of digital set extension or repair to remove. Absolutely. It was, that's, that's the interesting thing about that sequence in particular is that it was, there were so many techniques put into play in that we might go from a fully live action background plate and cut to a fully digital background plate, right? When I say plate, it's really a fully digital block that has sure. to match the previous shot. So it had to have the same cars, the same color, the same trees, the same buildings. On a lot of the live action plates, we had to kind of periodize them, meaning painting mm -hmm. out signs that are modern. So there was nothing confusing that said, oh, this is modern versus 1969. Kind of genericizing the background, so to speak. It was a lot, it was a lot of work. And in a chase sequence, you've obviously naturally got a moving camera. Did that place a kind of a tough time on the uh, match movers and tracking guys? Well, it did. And I think, you know, as, as the sequence progressed, which often happens in the films, we ended up saying, you know, this is going to be a better looking and easier shot if we just get rid of the live action plate and use our digital backlot, so to speak. Because then we could really control the light. We can really control the movement and have proper proper match moves or actually completely do away with the match move because sometimes what happens in production then this was a wild production it was moving left and right and up and down and in and out constantly is that we shot um, a lot of the backgrounds before we shot foregrounds instead of vice oh, really? versa we had ideas about well let's shoot the foregrounds first and then we're going to know what we'll need to shoot backgrounds with 
due to production schedules, weather concerns, availability of stunt writers, that kind of thing. We ended up shooting a huge variety of backgrounds. Looked at those, kind of pieced them together in editorial, went onto the set with the actors, put them on blue screen on the, on the you know, physical vehicles and said, okay, now let's figure out what we're gonna shoot to the backgrounds. Works great for a lot of it, doesn't work great for a lot of it, <laughs> especially if you're going around corners and those kind of things. So we ended up using a big variety of techniques on that sequence. You shot blue screen on this, didn't you? Is that because it was filmed? did shoot blue. It's an interesting thing. Um, just some kind of retro whim? A little bit. Okay. I would say that. It's funny because I, I, at the end of this film, I said I'm never shooting blue screen again. Um, there's, it was a collective decision. You know, look, we're using pretty fine grain film stock. And, uh, it's just that you need to get the levels of light up to it, it feels yeah. like. So. Well, because it's a comedy, Bill Pope's lighting, yeah. Barry used to be a DP, it's a bright movie. Okay. Actually, so there's a lot of light going on on the set anyway. Um, that actually helped us quite a bit. I prefer to shoot green screen. You know, it's tighter, it's easier to pull, but uh, Barry doesn't really like working on a green screen set because after like five or six hours, you start to feel a little bit crazy because of the green and it's unexplained, I think, why that happens. But we talked about it a lot collectively and said, oh, we'll shoot blue. Worked with it before, why not? So. You mentioned the camera work there. Another hallmark is he's very good at staging a shot in the sense that it doesn't tend to be handheld movement and right. like tricky kind of camera work. Right. So they're crafted while looking like he's just fixed, locked off camera. Well, that's a, it's a joke he's made before in, in saying that, you know, he doesn't think you need to pan ever, <laughs> which is, you know, it's overstating it. But if you look at the films, it's actually, they're very, you know, center composed, oftentimes symmetrical. And it, I, I like it because it's a different way of working instead of having the camera moving around all the time and having to track everything all the time. So did you guys do previs on a lot of this? We did a huge amount of previs actually. We started back in early 2010 on so did, storyboards and previs. Did you get that team to just watch a lot of his films? Because it, when somebody has a distinctive style like that, you need to be reflecting that in everything from previs to final shot. Right? Oh, absolutely. All the artists you know that came in had watched the first Men in Black films and watched, his, and watched Barry's other films like Adam's Family and whatnot. And as you get to work with him, you start to figure out a style. Now, previous artists will be artists, and you want the artist to actually express themselves as often as possible to come up with different ideas that might not be in storyboards or might not even be described in the action in the script. But uh, especially in a chase sequence, the camera's got to move, otherwise it's not very exciting. So he brought on Simon Crane, who was a stunt coordinator and the second unit director. And we worked together with Ken and Spencer Cook, the animation director. We all were kind of working together on pre-vising different sequences in the film. And actually post-vising as well, even after we shot live action. For editorial? Yeah, for editorial. We went back in and worked on using some of our foreground plates and matched 3D background new background plates to the foreground action. So it was a lot of work done from the very beginning to the very end in the kind of pre-vis, post-vis world. So when you've got the images here, what's the pipeline in terms of the gear that you're using uh, inside Sony? So our traditional pipeline here at Imageworks is Maya on the front end, we use Katana for lighting, and we've recently switched over to Nuke for the compositing on the back end, uh, and Houdini for effects. Right. On Men in Black, we were able to introduce a few additional new tools. Uh, we'll always keep evaluating um, you know, how we can enhance the pipeline a little bit. Uh, so our lead texture painter, John Wallace, really wanted to use Mari um, instead of you know, some of the tools we had used in the past. 
wasn't really that you know, supported at that time. Um, we certainly didn't have anyone who was that familiar with it, but he was really willing and really thought it could be beneficial in the long run. So I'm like, great, go for it. And, and uh, he got all of the other texture painters on the team you know, uh, into that mindset. We used that uh, almost exclusively. Uh, we used um, Houdini 12 as an alpha cut oh, for really? doing effects. Our you know, uh, effects supervisor, Theo Vandenutz, like, you know, we can get a lot of wins. They're fluid solvers, they're flip solvers a lot better. Um, Bullet was integrated into the package, you know, for doing some of the RVD stuff that we needed. But that would have been going out to Arnold, not Mantra? No, exactly, right. So we still have all of our internal data conversion tools for rendering out into Arnold. Um, the other th extension that we wound up doing Arnold for ray tracing is we did all of our volume rendering in Arnold as well. So before we had used an in-house, you know, volume renderer for that. But, you know, putting into Arnold allowed us to do all of the you know, rendering as, as one solution rather than, you know, get different renderers and then try to figure out all of the matting issues that we would have. And of course, you've got a very tight loop with Katana and Arnold as well. It's exactly right. So, you know, Katana, which was developed here, and then, you know, we've simply um, have a working you know, relationship with the Foundry now. Um, that's been developed over a number of years on multiple projects. So for us, that package is well-known and sort of well-developed, and uh, we have, you know, ins and outs between that and all of the other external third-party packages that we use, whether it's you know, information coming out of Maya or information coming out of Houdini, information tying back and forth with Nuke as well. And you guys have also been at the forefront of uh, working with the open color I.O. kind of stuff. Right. Now that's been incorporated now into Nuke. Would you have had it in Nuke at this point? Exactly. We had already developed open color I.O., which Jeremy Sealand had done with some others, uh, both into Katana and Nuke. Um, and that worked out you know, really well for us. That was before you know, the Foundry had released it in their latest cut of Nucus uh, as part of their package. Uh, so for us, that was you know, something that we've already been using as you know, outside vendors are now able to get access to that same sort of you know, feature set. You know, some, I think some of this data sharing that we're having, especially when it comes to color management, hopefully it will just become a thing of the past. And so uh, from a technical viewpoint then, the, the pipeline seems fairly tight, but it's not necessarily that usual to use alpha software and stuff in a pipeline. In fact, it's sort of normally a hallmark that you'd have a, a version lock kind of early and, and be damned if anything comes out after that. Exactly. It's, it's a little bit of a risk, you know, to go and try sort of unproven software within a facility or certainly untested even just in general nature. Um, but you know, some of the problems that come along on a show sort of dictate that. The problem is the technology changes so fast and so rapidly. So when we started Men in Black almost two years ago, you know, if we were to baseline the code back then, you know, we might miss out on some really cool, you know, exciting features that come along by either third party or even internally developed. Um, Those volumetric things you were talking about before mm -hmm. on the Houdini 12 stuff, did that feature in the Apollo 11 um, stuff? Because yeah. I imagine it would. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. Sort of scale of the destruction and various effects that we needed on the show ranged from very small scale, you know, you know, a couple feet grids, to you know, Apollo 11 liftoff, which is you know, on the order of you know, several hundred yards, and trying to get the the scales of each of these effects to work appropriately um, at the resolutions that we needed it, we needed much you know, faster, higher resolution grids. Uh, so we had looked into you know, Maya's fluid set, which is part of our package that. Uh, effects package that we use here at ImageWorks. There's some internal stuff that we have developed as well. Uh, but ultimately, you know, Theo kind of convinced myself and, you know, some of the other, you know, engineers here in the building that using Houdini 12 and their support for some of the GPU accelerations um, really gave a big win. So 
my, my response to Theo was, we'll get you a graphics card, we'll get you an alpha cut. You know, we had a software engineer who kind of, you know, got all of our internal, you know, um, extensions working in it. And sure enough, his results came back and, you know, he showed it to Ken Ralston, Jay Red, and myself, and we're like, great, <laughs> I think that's really viable. It's like, we, we all, you know, put up the caution, the facility put up the caution, Rob Bredo threw up the caution, um, that it is an alpha cut, you know, they're probably gonna keep coming up with, you know, uh, new versions all the time and trying to hopefully make it a little bit more stable. Um, for us, it was, do we just blindly go forward with this or do we have a backup plan? Um, our backup plan was, it was really more of a sacrifice in terms of, you know, some of the higher fidelity that we'd be getting in some of like our effects smoke, you know, simulations. Um, the end quality result, you know, it might've been just a little bit softer, a little less detailed. Um, we might not have gotten as many iterations done as possible. Um, it's not a great, you know, backup plan, but we knew that that definitely existed for us. So we kind of rolled the dice and moved forward a little bit. Uh, I think you sort of need to at this point. It's not to say that, you know, technology will always win out because in the end you still, it's an art form that we're doing. You know, you really rely on the artists to come out and, you know, use this tool set. Well, it's like you're saying with the stadiums and with some of those other things, you need to sort of start with a really good mathematical basis, but be willing to go and change it creatively if required. Exactly, you have to be you know, somewhat flexible. And you know, it was the same thing when we were adapting Mario as well. It's, you know, there was no support from the facility from it. We had no pipeline support for it you know, to fit within our, our you know, workflow. Was your texturing P-Tex before Mario? No, we were using primarily like body paint. Okay. Um, there was certainly a lot of Photoshop type work done in it. Um, but body paint was our primary one for doing the 3D assets. Because I'm hearing from a lot of Mari artists mm -hmm. that with 1314, they've kind of just not opening Photoshop very much, even though, of course, the newest versions of Mari supports a round trip to Photoshop kind of nicely. That, and that's true. I would say, you know, our texture painters have probably adapted somewhat similar philosophies. You know, the fact that it can have all of that, you know, sort of proper communications with Photoshop, they found it really wasn't as, I think, a big boon or win as, you know, they thought they might be going in. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Yep, sure. No worries. Thanks, Mike. And coming up in future weeks, we have more summer blockbusters, including in-depth interviews from the films Prometheus. Take us home! If you don't stop it, they won't give you hope to go back to And Spider-Man. Well, until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.